This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia. Good evening, Radio Orbit, and this is Mike Hagan, 
and you listen to it on a Monday night, November the 7th, 2005. Coming at you for the next three hours, Radio Orbit, live and in person. Sort of a party going on down here anyway tonight. I've got some close friends from Chicago in town and uh, visiting and sitting in the studio and listening to the show tonight and some other people and friends uh, from down at the Blue Fugue who were uh, chatting it up with me earlier tonight when we were down there. Probably swinging by. So lots of fun stuff going on tonight. If you're in the area, why not? Come on down, 915 East Broadway, and uh, you'll have to know the secret password and the secret staircase. And if you don't know that, well, you can't come in. All right. Uh, thanks to Debbie, Free Range Radio Theater. Aldous, Huxley, uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, killer stuff, again, from, uh, from Debbie on Free Range Radio Theater every Monday night at 10 o'clock. Uh, setting up Radio Orbit nicely. And gosh, uh, uh, Debbie just on a tear doing Homer's Odysseus and War of the Worlds recently. Aldous Hux- uh, Huxley's, I can't say that tonight, but anyway, Huxley's uh, Brave New World. Really cool stuff and couldn't be more happy, as I always say, uh, following Debbie's show. So check that out every week, 10 o'clock on Mondays, uh, Free Range Radio Theater with Debbie Johnson. And before that, Kelvin and Jason doing jazz plus blues equals soul. All right, so this is Mike. Uh, the moon rising in the south tonight. Pretty cool. Just about a uh, just picking up on that quarter moon that we saw just last week, but it'll be about a half moon in a day or two now. But uh, really cool uh, star gazing for the last couple of nights. Venus, of course, is sort of setting in the south right as the moon is rising, and you can see. Uh, that every evening now. Tonight it was amazing how bright Venus is in the south. And right as the moon is coming out, Venus is sort of dropping on the horizon. And then Mars, of course, rising uh, on the other side of the horizon in the uh, uh, in the northeast. So uh, real cool stuff up in the skies above our heads. Has been now for the last few weeks since Mars has been so bright and Venus uh, just on the horizon at, at sunset. So anyway, Halloween last week. Had uh, cool stuff going on in the skies as well. We had Kent Stedman on the air. Thanks, as always, to Barge Quill uh, for spending his evening for us last week. And we always enjoy it when Kent's on the air with us. So, all right. um, What else do we have to talk about? The new website. I need everybody, uh, if you have an Internet connection, to check out the new website and send me feedback. And let me know what you think. If you like it, if you think it sucks, if uh, if there are things that you think uh, could be done better, uh, whatever. I'd really be interested in your thoughts. And to do that, you can go on the web to www.mikehagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N, mikehagan.com. And uh, there's plenty of ways to get in touch with me from there, but you always know my email address is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. Uh, so check out the new website. There's lots of new stuff there. We've got the archives there, as always. You can listen to any of these shows uh, in perpetuity, as long as I have the money to keep the website up. And my uh, my new friend and webmaster, Larry, uh, decides to continue doing the amazing work that he's been doing for me for the last couple months. So anyway, lots of really cool stuff going on the website. I'm really happy with the news page. If you go over there, go check out the uh, the Radio Orbit news page. I've been posting sort of uh, daily two or three stories that I come across 
that I find interesting. And uh, that's turning into be a pretty cool part of the website because as the stories add on, you just sort of have this building page that has just sort of a scroll down um, from, uh, uh, I guess, uh, the, the oldest ones are toward the bottom and the newest ones are on the top. And you can just sort of page up and down and look at a whole bunch of really cool uh, stories that are in the news uh, that, I've, that I'm sort of pulling out and posting up there on the website now. So, uh, so that's going on. As I said, the archives are always available and lots of really neat stuff. Uh, that Larry has come up with uh, that he's including in the in the new website now. So anyway, check that out at MikeHagan.com, and I'd be really uh, appreciative for any comments, good, bad, or ugly, that you might send to me and let me know what you guys think, all right? Okay, tonight, uh, Walter Cruttenden. Walter Cruttenden is a very interesting man, and he's written a book called Lost Star of Myth and Time. And uh, we've chatted a little bit about this over the last couple of weeks. I've sort of been telling you about what uh, what is coming up, but um, the, uh, the the basic idea with, uh, with Walter's theory is that the sun is part of a binary star system, uh, which basically means that uh, the sun is not the only star that affects uh, the planets and the other objects that are in the solar system here. So We'll get a lot deeper into this as we as we get to talking with Walter at the top of the hour in about 50 minutes. But uh, at any rate, Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. And as I said before, go to the website and you can get a little leg up on everybody and click on tonight's guest and that'll take you to information about Walter, the book that he's written. And uh, I'll give you a couple of websites actually right now that you might take a look at before uh, before we get talking to Walter. And the first website for Walter is uh, www.loststarbook.com. That's loststarbook.com. And uh, for those of you who are sort of uh, more inclined to the nuts and bolts science side of it, uh, the other website I would suggest is www.binaryresearchinstitute.org. And that's uh, actually been sort of my uh, focus since I've uh, been working on this interview with Walter and sort of brushing up myself. I've had a lot of uh, uh, time that I've spent at the Binary Research Institute, and I actually think that that website is fascinating, and there's great stuff there. And it's primarily, uh, it's not New Age Hocus Pocus. It's all of the, 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 the scientific theoretical stuff, including all the mathematics involved in this sort of thing. And really highly detailed stuff of which uh, I, as a layman, honestly can't uh, fully understand. But those of you out there who are further educated than me in the mathematics and sciences might uh, benefit from going over there to the binary research institute.org. Okay? All right, so those are, uh, uh, those are Walter's websites. And it's going to be a very interesting conversation with him uh, in 45 minutes or so as we talk about binary star systems and whether ours actually is one or not. And interestingly, it turns out that, uh, and I'll read a story about this a little bit later, but uh, if in fact our uh, solar system is not part of a binary system, that in and of itself is sort of of note, because as it turns out, over the last four or five years, the straight astrophysical community 
has come out and basically is in agreement saying that uh, up to 80, 85% of all of the systems that they see out there uh, in the galaxy and in the universe are binary or multiple star systems. So in other words, if the Earth and the solar system that we uh, inhabit uh, were not part of a binary system, it would actually be an anomaly. It would actually be sort of uh, an exception to what uh, scientists and astrophysicists are telling us uh, is now the rule. So anyway, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll certainly ask uh, Walter about that and talk more about all this stuff as we, as we get going, all right? All right, let's see. It's quarter after. Let me talk a little bit about uh, some guests that are coming up. We'll play a little music. Uh, the music tonight is going to be its a, uh, sort of a special music night. You know, since I've gotten involved with Larry, uh, Larry Norger, my, my new webmaster, he has introduced me to a lot of uh, different musicians and genres that I'm not typically involved in or familiar with, uh, but really pleased that he's sort of opening up some of these uh, some of these doors for me and tonight uh, we're going to do more of the same and we have a wonderful independent musician who I'm going to be featuring tonight his name is Martin Lind and uh, as an artist he goes by the name Basic B-A-S-S-I-C but uh, the music of Martin Lind is uh, uh, special and transformative and fun and we're going to be playing a lot of that stuff uh, as we get uh, into the show tonight. So stick around for real cool music as well. Independent music uh, from Martin Lind. Basic. Uh, basic stuff. Okay, so what else? Uh, next week, Lucy Pringle. And it's funny because my, my friend uh, Steve Hoffman... Sorry if I mentioned your last name on the air there if anybody's looking for you. But uh, he's in town here. And he was actually here about a year ago when we had Lucy Pringle on the air for the first time. Uh, speaking from her home in Hampshire uh, in the United Kingdom in England. And Lucy is a crop circle or crop formation researcher. She's a private pilot. She's an uh, amazing photographer. And she's been investigating these strange things and fantastic things that have been occurring on the hillsides and the, uh, the wheat fields of, of Europe for nearly 30 years now. And so we'll talk to Lucy about what this last season uh, in the summertime was like in London, uh, or in, in England, I should say, and and uh, and where her research is this year, if they're any further, if they have any more information that uh, uh, or insights to what this phenomenon really is really about, uh, the, the legitimate side of the phenomenon at least, not the, the, the human uh, side of it, which of course exists and, and is acknowledged. There's no question about it that it a certain percentage of these are being done by human beings, and and uh, maybe all of them. It's just that we don't understand the methodology uh, that's being used in in, uh, in certain uh, certain cases. So anyway, we'll talk with Lucy Pringle about that next week. Doro Meinke, uh, the following week, that's the 21st of November. She is an initiated Peruvian shaman, and we'll be talking about male initiatory rites and uh, uh, something that's been lost in the West uh, over the last. 500 years or so, uh, but uh, male initiation is something that was considered uh, critical and a very important part of the life of a young man and moving from uh, boyhood to manhood. And uh, we see vapor trails of it in our in our sort of soft rituals like the bar mitzvah and uh, in the Catholic or the Christian tradition we have things like uh, uh, like communion and confirmation, 
but these are just sort of social ordinations. Uh, they really are not about personal experience and about individual accomplishment or anything like this. So anyway, Doro Meinke is going to tell us some things about male initiatory rites and male initiation that uh, that she brings from the shamanic tradition and uh, much to learn, certainly from, uh, from Doro in a couple of weeks. Joseph Chilton Pierce, my good friend Joe Pierce. I'm so excited to talk again to Joe. Uh, he's in his mid-80s now uh, and uh, not of the best of health, but uh, uh, hanging in there and still an amazing intellect and as sharp as a tack. And Joe and I are going to talk on the 19th of November. And, of course, uh, I don't expect to do a live show with him. He's on the East Coast, and uh, it's just a little bit uh, too uncivilized for, for, his, uh, for his lifestyle these days. But at any rate, Joseph Chilton Pierce, I'll have uh, a recorded interview with Joe in the next few weeks. And the subject of our talk is going to be technology and the heart. And uh, the idea being that as we move into these realms of tremendously advanced technology, uh, why it's significant that we move into those places uh, with the heart uh, involved in the decision-making process. And I think that uh, uh, for, for those of you out there that are paying attention, it becomes obvious why we have to do that. But uh, at, any rate, uh, at any rate, Joe is a guy that can talk... Uh, physiology, neurology, and uh, and also has a component of the mystical uh, that he can bring to us. So anyway, really excited for Joseph Chilton Pierce coming up in just a few weeks. My good friend Paradise Newland from Hawaii and the Sirius Institute, she's coming up. We're going to talk about water birth and again about dolphins. And uh, anyway, lots of good stuff coming up. So just stay tuned. All right. And we'll keep the good stuff coming at you. All right, we're going to take a break here, come back with uh, a few news stories, do space weather, and at the top of the hour, Walter Cruttenden. And we'll talk about his book, uh, Lost Star of Myth and Time. Wonderful story about precession of the equinox and uh, the possibility that the Earth and our solar system is actually part of a binary star system and that there's another star here uh, that we don't particularly know about or are not familiar with. Okay, this is a, a song by Martin Lind, as I mentioned earlier. Music from Basic. It's called Incantation. Enjoy it. We'll hear more of it for the rest of the night. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
All right, cool. That's Incantation, Martin Lind, Basic, on Radio Orbit. Okay, this is Mike, and it's Radio Orbit, and 25 after 11, top of the hour here in about 35 minutes, we've got Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. We'll be talking about precession of the equinoxes and uh, the possibility of a binary star system being something that we're involved with here on this planet. Okay, what else? Uh, I have some stories to talk about. Do I have anything else special? Oh, okay, hey, look. Uh, there's a show co- uh, coming up at the Blue Fugue tomorrow night. Uh, it's a band called Five Choose One. So anyway, if you're up for it, and if you want to go see Five Choose One, a cool band from Warrington, Missouri, a three-piece. And um, I think they're... Uh, I, I'll be frank, I haven't heard them, but I've heard they're good, and I've heard that they're sort of like Morphine, if you're familiar with the band Morphine. So anyway, a three-piece from Warrington... Uh, I've got a couple tickets uh, for the Fugue tomorrow night, uh, so give me a call at the next break at 573-874-5676, or uh, send me an email at orbitradio at AOL.com, and you get a couple tickets to that. And I'm not even sure it's a big deal, because the show might be free. <laughs> there might not be a cover. So, if there's not a cover, it's no big deal, but you can still say you want them. And if there is a cover, it won't be much, it'll only be a couple $3, so... Uh, regardless, go see them uh, at the Blue Fugue on uh, uh, the 8th, tomorrow night, Tuesday night, okay? And that's 5 Choose 1. And I've got some music from them, but I'm not sure if I'm going to play it or not. All right, uh, let's see. Let's go to the newsroom. I've been talking about the new website. So the cool thing about the website is that uh, I've got, or one of the cool things, I guess I should say, because I like it, a lot of the things about it, but at any rate, the news... Uh, the news page is pretty cool because I can just post these stories that I come across over the last week and uh, not lose track of them. And as you all know, one of the things that I lament on the air all the time is the fact that I run across all these different stories over the course of a week, but because I only have one night a week, three hours, two of which is typically taken up by an interview, uh, I don't have near the time to talk about all the different stories that I think are interesting and, and relevant. Uh, so now I've got the, the news page on the Mike Hagan website, and I can just sort of post them all up there. And And even if I can't talk about all of them on the air, they're always there for you guys to go read. And I'll talk about a couple of them right now, okay? All right, this is uh, from uh, Boston Associated Press. And the title of this story says, Fab Labs Unshackle Imaginations. When Makita Stevenson compared flight simulator games sold in computer stores and didn't find anything she liked, she didn't stop there. The 13-year-old used a set of computer-controlled manufacturing tools at a community center to make her own simulator, one that lets her fly an airplane of her design over an alien planet born of her imagination. She did it all through a teen learning program in one of seven so-called fab labs that MIT, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, of course, has established in places as distant as Norway and Ghana. Now, of course, the article is uh, much more 
uh, in depth than that, but that's just a taste of it. Uh, bottom line, these, these fab labs are doing these amazing things with manufacturing and uh, involving advanced manufacturing technologies, nanotechnology, all kinds of things. And, uh, and, and, and children are actually building uh, worlds with this stuff, and it's amazing what's happening. And, of course, uh, a big part of this show is concentration on the imagination and creativity and art and life in the imagination. And, and uh, uh, although the technologies that we always talk about are a double-edged sword, there's no question about it. They can be utilized very effectively for, uh, for nastiness, as we see all the time. Uh, but they also offer a lifeboat to us. They, all, they offer uh, the opportunity to do things that we've never had the ability to do before. And so, uh, as with all things, uh, the technology itself, not really good, bad, indifferent, uh, evil, any of those things. It's a matter of uh, the employment of the technology, the wisdom behind those who wield it. And uh, this is where we run into trouble. But hey, you know, there's always another another day. So anyway, kids doing amazing stuff in these fab labs from MIT. All right, here's another story. Researchers look to create a synthesis of art and science for the 21st century. Here's a story that I like. Uh, the six-story Calat 2 laboratory, which overlooks the Pacific Ocean, is designed for 900 faculty and student researchers. Two separate wings extend from the main building. On one side... Uh, on one side is the ultra-sterile set of nanotechnology clean rooms designed for making devices like sensors for detecting pollutants, biological warfare agents, and cancer cells. On the other side is a new digital media arts center composed of auditoriums, computer visualization laboratories, where the Calat 2 scientists, engineers, and artists can display their projects. So this is a great, uh, this is from the New York Times, but it's a wonderful uh, article about uh, science and uh, and art bridging a gap that's been uh, that's been so wide for the la- again you know f- f- since the the quote unquote enlightenment you know the last 400 years of of, of male dominated uh, paternalistic science uh, we're finally getting uh, an, an an artistic influence. Uh, working together with uh, with the scientific side. So anyway, again, the heart and the mind uh, working together for balance, and this is one of the things that we've lacked for so long, and hopefully uh, uh, we see more of this. But anyway, wonderful stuff in a synthesis of art and science. What else we have here? Um, This is one that is sort of relevant with regard to the show we did a couple weeks ago with uh, Sir Charles Schultz. We were talking about Mars and and, uh, uh, the fact that fossils have been found on the surface of Mars. (coughs) Pardon me. Uh, At any rate, uh, this story right here says, uh, Volcanoes ruled out for Martian methane. And I'll preface this real fast. Uh, uh, the, the question about methane in the atmosphere of Mars is one of great significance because uh, without a, a natural source of, uh, of methane that's, that, that's produced through uh, geologic and volcanic ac- uh, activity, 
the only other, at least as far as we know, uh, the only other source for methane is biological. And so if there's methane in the Martian atmosphere, it means there's either biological activity that's ongoing, real-time, now, not in the past, living organisms, or uh, there's a, a, a source, a volcanic source, or a geologic source for it. So, anyway, this story right here from space.com, I think it is. Anyway, Howard, uh, uh, new observations of the Martian atmosphere show no trace of sulfurous fumes. The finding rules out active volcanoes as the source of the red planet's mysterious methane, but fails to resolve the question of whether the methane comes from uh, of whether where uh, of where the methane comes from, I should say. Most astronomers suspected its presence was a result of geological processes, while a few suggested methane was a signature of past or present life. And if you heard the show with uh, with uh, Sir Charles Schultz a couple weeks ago, you know what he thinks. And you should go check out his uh, his website at xenotechresearch.com or you should go listen to the interview that I did with him a couple weeks ago. Just go to the Mike Hagan website and go to the archives and you can listen to amazing information about the planet Mars that we talked about just a couple weeks ago. But anyway, methane on Mars and nobody knows where it's coming from. All right, we've got time for one more here. Uh, Robert Moog. Robert Moog died, the guy that uh, inter- that uh, developed and uh, basically intro- introduced synthesized sound. Uh, we're doing a lot of music with this guy, Martin Lind, tonight, and he does a lot of electronic music, obviously. Uh, but anyway, Robert Moog, uh, just a, a profound influence on uh, electronic and synthesized music, and he died uh, recently. Uh, scientists cracked the code for motor neuron wiring. This is a mind blower. Check this out. Howard Hughes Medical Institute researchers have deciphered a key part in the regulatory code that governs how motor neurons in the spinal cord connect to specific target muscles in the limbs. Understanding this code may help guide progress in restoring motor neuron function in people whose spinal cords have been damaged by trauma or disease. Uh, they're getting very close to understanding how the how the wiring of uh, the human neurology works and being able to intervene uh, in that uh, system with possible great benefit. And again, you know, there's you know, there's always the chance that you create Gollum or Frankenstein's uh, from this stuff, but. Uh, uh, but it moves forward nonetheless, and so we talk about it and uh, watch it and see what happens and discuss it. And uh, Anyway, that's what's going on. Those stories, among many others, at the at the uh, Radio Orbit news page. That's at MikeHagan.com, and then just uh, click on the news, uh, the news link there, okay? All right, we're going to take a break here. I'm going to get Walter on the telephone, and we'll play some more music here by Basic, music by Martin Lind. And we'll come back and talk about a few more stories. And then uh, then Walter Cruttenden, at the top of the hour, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. And it's going to be a fascinating conversation tonight. So stick around. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And as I said before, this is Martin Lind. And this song is called Elemental. I like it. This is Mike. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stick around.
Yeah. How cool is that? Martin Lind. Basic. And uh, I dig it. That was called Elemental. Earth, air, water, and fire. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about 11.45 in the nighttime on the 7th of November. Just closing in on the 8th in about 15 minutes. And uh, at the same time, we will uh, talk to our guest tonight, Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. We've been chatting a little bit about Walter and his theories and ideas and his book uh, earlier tonight and uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks, a little bit here and there. But anyway, uh, tonight, Walter on the air with us uh, from uh, midnight uh, until 2 through the end of the program. So really looking forward to that. And lots of people out there, I know that you guys are looking forward to it too. So uh, that's coming up in just about 15 minutes. All right, let's do space weather here. And uh, not a whole lot to talk about. Sort of a quiet sun right now, actually. Solar wind, uh, sort of mellow, sort of streaming past Earth right now, but it's sort of a, a thin stream and uh, doing very little, actually, to uh, to spark aurora borealis, anything like that. So pretty quiet sun, not a whole lot to, uh, not a whole lot to talk about. There have been a lot of fireball, quote-unquote fireballs, or meteorites, or meteors, or falling stars. Uh, lots of sightings over the last couple of days. Uh, on the second, actually, over El Paso, there was a great, uh, very bright one, actually, that got captured on tape. And it exploded sort of in midair. And uh, there's a great video of this over at spaceweather.com. But this guy named Jim Gamble uh, works for the Sandia Meteor Detector Network. And they have these cameras there that film the sky. And they caught this thing. And it was as bright as the moon, man, for sure, when it actually exploded. It was pretty cool. Uh, but there seems to be quite a marked increase in that over the last couple of weeks or so. And many of these fireballs are from uh, what's called the Torrid Meteor Stream. And the Torrid, T-A-U-R-I-D. Again, all of these meteorite uh, and meteor showers that they talk about, they name them after the constellations uh, from which they appear to originate. Uh, in this case, Taurus, the Torrid meteor stream, appears from our perspective uh, to uh, to come toward the solar system and toward the planet uh, from the direction of Taurus. Now, interestingly, I'm just thinking about this right now, but uh, this idea of frame of reference and perspective is a really important one for what we're going to be talking about tonight with, with Walter Cruttenden. And we'll get into that a little bit uh, deeper as as we get into the program. But uh, Walter can make some great uh, analogies to explain how uh, how relevant this is. This whole idea of uh, of frame of reference and how confusing it can be uh, as well. So uh, it's relevant to, to to this talk about. Um, about what's happening in the skies, and also to the conversation that we're going to have with Walter in just a few minutes. So, All right, so uh, with regard to that, uh, the Torrid meteor stream uh, kicking up a bunch of fireballs over the last few days and over the last week or so, and that peaks again on the 12th, I think, of November. So that's uh, uh, something that you'll see over the next, uh, over the next few days uh, for sure. All right, okay, now um, let's see, what time is it? It's about... It's about Ten minutes till. 
So let me read this story here, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, about binary star systems, just to sort of set up our uh, our conversation with with Mr. Cruttenden here coming up in just a few minutes. But I wanted to uh, uh, I wanted to relate this as sort of a framework for the conversation that we're going to have, and this is a story from uh, the archives. It's maybe from the year 2001, I want to say, plus or minus. But it's it's a good three four years old, and this is from uh, from Harvard uh, from Harvard University Chandra Observatory uh, for people who are interested in solar and stellar phenomenon. One of the satellites that we rely on for data is this uh, uh, this satellite that we call Chandra C H A N D R A. But anyway, uh, it's run out of Harvard. So anyway, this is uh, from from the Chandra Harvard uh, archives. And it's titled Binary and Multiple Star Systems. Now check this out. Stars, like people, are seldomly found in isolation. More than 80% of all stars are members of multiple star systems containing two or more stars. Exactly how these systems are formed is not well understood. Some are thought to form when collapsing clouds of gas break apart into two or more clouds, which then become stars, or when, one star, or when one star captures another as a result of a grazing collision or by a close encounter with two or more other stars. The most common multiple star systems are those with two stars. These so-called binary stars have played an important role in many areas of astronomy, especially X-ray astronomy. And of course, Chandra is an X-ray observatory, uh, this, this satellite that I've been talking to you about. All right, uh, in... In many binary systems, uh, the stars orbit their common centers of mass under the influence of their mutual gravitational force, but they evolve independently. These are called wide binaries and are analogous to friends that are far apart but stay in touch with an occasional telephone call or email on the holidays. The hot, uh, the hot upper atmospheres or coronas of these stars can produce X-rays, but not nearly so spectacularly as the X-ray binaries discussed below uh, blah, blah, blah. And elsewhere, wide binaries are nevertheless important because they provide the best means of measuring the masses of stars by observing the size and period of the orbit and then applying theories of gravity. Uh, let's see. what uh, I guess that's, prim- that, that, that's the most relevant uh, part of the article. It goes on quite a bit. But the bottom line is that this is coming from one of our primary, uh, one of our primary sources of information and data on astrophysics from Harvard University, one of our most treasured and uh, and and uh, uh, respected institutions. Now, of course, that can be argued, <laughs> but at any rate, most people think uh, Harvard is a great source of information and data. So, if you believe that, uh, the first sentence of that story again it basically tells you here they say more than 80% of all stars are members of multiple star systems containing two or more stars. So the implication is that uh, 80% of the stars that we know about are part of a binary system or a multiple star system. So if the Earth and the Sun uh, and the system that we're in aren't, are not part of a binary system, that in and of itself is sort of anomalous and interesting. Because the majority of stars out there are. So the question tonight is, what 
is the real story. Is uh, Seoul the only star in our system, as we've always uh, been told and been led to believe and what we've learned and what we just think is uh, almost intuitive? I mean, we, all, we, 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 don't, even, we don't, don't even question that. Uh, but certainly uh, there are, in, in, in the past, as you'll see, uh, some of our ancestors and some of the historical cultures on this planet have had uh, uh, questions and concerns uh, with regard to this uh, possibility of another star being in the system. And uh, it's a pretty interesting concept. And the guy we're going to talk to tonight knows more about it than... Uh, I'm willing to say most anybody on the planet right now. So, um, that's cool. so that's uh, that's coming up in just just a few minutes. We'll play a little bit more music here from Basic again, Martin Lind. And I want to mention uh, uh, how special I think this guy is. Again, I've I've only recently been introduced to his music, uh, but uh, this guy Martin Lind, he has just sort of mastered the art of musical composition, in my opinion, and and. And he's got a great recording technique. If you dig Pink Floyd or Tangerine Dream or uh, Kraftwerk or uh, Brian Eno, you know, uh, Kitaro, great Japanese stuff. If you're into that, you will dig uh, Basic, this guy that we're playing and featuring tonight on the show. And this is another song by the man himself, Martin Lind, and it is called, what do I want to play here? I think I want to play Rain. All right, check it out. This is Rain from Martin Lind, Basic, on Radio Orbit. We'll be back in five minutes with Walter Cruttenden, author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. We'll be talking about binary star systems, precession of the equinoxes, history, mythology, and uh, that'll just get things started, okay? All right, stick around. This is Mike. We'll be back at you in a few minutes. And hello to everybody out there listening, and also all to uh, everybody who came down here to hang out at the station and listen live with me. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right, here we go.
All right, there you have it. Basic on KOPN Columbia Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. That was Rain. And again, Martin Lind. Wonderful music, and we'll be playing more of that uh, as the evening rolls along here. This is Mike Hagan, and uh, I am very pleased uh, to bring uh, my guest on the air here in just a moment. Uh, Walter Cruttenden is uh, an amateur archaeoastronomer, the author of the Binary Theory of Precession. He's the executive director of the Binary Research Institute, of which we'll talk about tonight. Uh, he spends much of his time researching the celestial mechanics of the precession of the equinox, another topic which we will talk about at length tonight, uh, as well as uh, ancient structures. We'll talk about the pyramids. We'll talk about some of these amazing stone circles that have been found, even some recently, uh, one in China just uh, uh, a couple, uh, three, four days ago, actually, maybe a week ago, 4,100-year-old stone circle uh, in China. Uh, anyway... Uh, he's the writer, producer of The Great Year, which is a PBS uh, broadcast documentary film uh, narrated, uh, narrated actually by James Earl Jones, and it explores the evidence of astronomical cycles of time known to cultures throughout the ancient world. And uh, Walter Cruttenden has uh, pursued this in his book, Lost Star of Myth and Time. It's a fascinating topic, and uh, I've got... Uh, dog ears on all kinds of different pages on the book as I've been uh, reading it over the last month or so. But uh, without further ado, we'll let Walter do a little bit more of an introduction for himself, but uh, let's get right to it. Walter, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Orbit tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. How are things going? We've got Walter live from, from somewhere in California. I'm not, sure, I'm not even sure actually where. We're down in the southern part of the state, uh, Corona Del Mar. Corona Del Mar. Yes, it's about halfway between L.A. and San Diego. Ah, and that's a nice, nice part of the country down there. Sure is. All right, well, look, um, Walter, before we, get, uh, before we get too deeply into this, why don't, uh, for the people who aren't familiar with you, who don't know anything about uh, your background, let's do a little bit of framework real quick. How did you become interested in uh, topics of uh, astrophysics and stellar uh, uh, relationships and uh, mythology and all the stuff that you're uh, that actually we're going to be talking about tonight that's involved in this book. But wh where did it all come from? Give us a little bit about your background, maybe. Sure, Mike. Well, for me, it started uh, as a boy, really. I remember uh, I was just fascinated with uh, ancient cultures when I was young. And that's probably normal, you know, lost civilizations. And uh, I remember a National Geographic uh, article on... Uh, Pompeii, which they had uh, mm. recently discovered part of it uh, buried under uh, the ashes of Mount Vesuvius there. And and uh, I just couldn't get off the subject, so my mom uh, bought me a lot of books on it, and I realized how many ancient cities had sort of gone by the wayside. Mm. You know, Sumer uh, declined to Akkad, declined to Babylon, and then the whole Mesopotamia Valley went to dust. Same thing over in the Indus Valley. Harappa was quite advanced, uh, as was Mohenjo-Daro, uh, very advanced civilization, and uh, went to to dust. And pretty much uh, same thing around the rest of the globe: the megalithic culture, ancient Egypt, etc. Hmm. And yet, when I got into school, they were teaching us that everything was pretty linear: caveman to modern man. 
and they just kind of brushed over these things that I was so interested in. Right. And to me, the uh, the linear theory of history seemed to have a lot of holes in it. And so I've just uh, just been reading everything I could on it for the last 40 years. All right. Well, I think that that's actually a good segue into my first question that I had because uh, we do tend to have this idea that history is linear. That and and by linear we mean that uh, that it is progressively uh, that it advances progressively from uh, from less sophisticated or less advanced to more uh, states of advancement, and th- that sort of conflicts with another uh, idea, which is this idea of the cyclical. Uh, uh, idea of history, and maybe we can talk about that for a while, and we can compare and contrast linear versus cyclical time. Yes, the uh, the ancient idea of uh, there being cycles of time, with sort of a golden age at one end and a dark age at the other, right, right. Uh, is very widespread. There's a uh, former professor of the history of science at MIT, Giorgio de Santillana. He and Hertha von Deschen wrote the book Hamlet's Mill. Mm, incredible in, book. Yes, in, in which they documented uh, um, probably 200 myths and 30 ancient cultures that talked about this cycle. It's known as the Great Year. That was Plato's term for it. The Chinese also called it that. And um, it was uh, that was the dominant theory of history up until uh, the biblical age when the teaching that uh, the world is 6,000 years uh, took over, um, Adam and Eve, and then a flood, and then, you know, everything very new. Hmm. And then um, I would say that stuck, hung in there until uh, Darwin came along, middle, late 1800s. Uh, the theory of evolution was uh, fairly widely accepted. And, of course, in that idea... Uh, anything that came before us was more primitive, hmm. whether it's man or civilization. And so uh, it was also at the time that explorers were really realizing uh, how extensive Egypt was, and they were just finding the Mesopotamian ruins. And so I think there was an automatic assumption that, yeah, they're old, but it must have been built by very primitive people. Hmm. And when you're first looking at ruins, uh, yes, they do seem primitive because, you know, everything's broken down. Uh, but the more that has been found out about uh, these great cultures, uh, uh, the more astounding it is. You know, the, in Mesopotamia, Sumerians, uh, they left uh, almost 100,000 uh, cuneiform tablets. Hmm. And although only a very small percentage uh, have been found, uh, have been uh, read, deciphered. Uh, what we're learning is, you know, it, it was a great uh, civilization that, that traded far and wide, had seaports, um, um, extensive government. Uh, their knowledge of astronomy and mathematics was quite advanced. Uh, they've even found uh, trepanation devices, these uh, tools used for brain surgery. Hmm. Uh, so it was uh, quite a culture. And... Um, when you consider that all these ancient cultures fell all around the world, um, you wonder if uh, the linear idea of time is really the correct one. And so that led me on a search to uh, 
to look for different theories of history that might explain the linear theory. You know, if if uh, history is cyclical, what would cause it to be cyclical? Mm. And that got me into astronomy, of course. Right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that the more... And I didn't even realize it until recently, but I but I I've talked to a number of different people that talk about these sort of topics of uh, the history of archaeology and and what we really know about the about the past, which is really sketchy actually when you really start to go to the mat on it, you know. Uh, but the um, the idea was that uh, that these cultures and that many of the artifacts that we find actually. Uh, in uh, the pyramids in, in Egypt in particular and in South America, it turns out that the, the oldest ones were more sophisticated and more well uh, technologically, uh, adv- or, or they, were, they were built more accurately, I guess is one way to put it, than the newer ones. So it looks like there's an, uh, that, that knowledge is being lost over time as opposed to being gained. Yes, uh, John Anthony West has talked about that quite a bit, uh, Schwaller de Lubitz, uh mm. You know, quite a, uh, a scientist uh, realized that the the early pyramids are the most uh, precisely uh, built, and then as you get uh, and they have little in the way of hieroglyphics, and then when you get to uh, the older ones, uh, they're not built as well; uh, they actually decay easier, and they're just gaudy with uh, with hieroglyphics. Uh, so. Yeah, that's interesting. And these, this, you know, pyramids and hinges and obelisks and uh, dolmens and cairns, all these uh, mm. stone structures seem to have uh, some attributes for uh, monitoring the stars, the heavens. Right, right. And uh, that's, it seems like these very old cultures were were just fascinated with the motion of the heavens. So, so in, in a nutshell, it's, it, it's probably a poor assumption that older, older equals less advanced as a general idea. That's a, that's a bad assumption. I think so, yes. Uh, you know, we tend to always uh, judge things based on our own standards. And so right now we would view uh, an advanced civilization as uh, somebody with, you know, better... Uh, flat screens or cell phones or computers or a technology like this. Hmm. Uh, but there, you know, there's cultures that have much different values than we have. And um, there's some benefits to, uh, you know, living, say, very much in tune with nature. Hmm. And, and you find this... Um, for example, the uh, the terra preta soil that they've been found finding in the Amazon. This is uh, a soil that is so rich that uh, you can grow cash crops in about half the time, and, and the fruit is twice as big. Say papaya, for example. Yeah, that's that's something that I, that I was definitely going to ask you about uh, because it's a, a, another one of these anomalies that just cannot be explained and has yet to be explained. Yes, and so when the locals come across this, they they get all excited, and for the West has been studying it for about 80 years or so, and they thought first it was alluvial, uh, then maybe it was uh, you know river sediments or something, and it and 
but it uh, it's biologically active and it's full of uh, ceramic shards, and so it's pretty well accepted that it's man-made now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it dates back uh, some of these artifacts to about 9,000 years, which really kind of blew everyone's uh, mind that uh, the Amazon could have a civilization that old. But Cornell has been studying this. We still do not know how to recreate it today. So it's just you know one more thing you're finding in the ancient world that uh, is of tremendous value to uh, an ancient society that we hardly recognize today because it's dirt. But yet we do not know how to recreate it. Yep, and and uh, and just to clarify a little bit for people out there that are wondering what this is, this terra preta, uh, it it really is. It's dirt. It's basically this really super fertile uh, soil that's found in the Amazon in certain places, and it and it and and it's found in you know a, a few hectares here and then a few hectares there and some bigger places. But as Walter points out, it has been. First, you know, the crazy thing, Walter, about it is that it uh, it regenerates. Yes, it, it's uh, it's self-generating. As long as you don't take too much of it away, it'll uh, just keep reproducing itself. And you're right, they found it generally in 20 to 30 hectare plots, but some plots are several hundred hectares. But the total amount that they found, you put all these uh, plots together, it's almost the size of France. <laughs> So it's indicative that uh, there was a very large and uh, extensive uh, culture in the Amazon a very, very long time ago. Yeah, and and, and with some sort of, I mean, there's some sort of technology, regardless of how you want to define it, that was obviously involved in this particular phenomenon that we're trying to figure out. Yes, we don't know yet. Um, You know, another fascinating um, uh, South American find that, that kind of forces us to uh, rewrite history a little bit is these uh, pyramids at Corral, Peru that uh, have recently been discovered. Give, uh, give us an idea of uh, where that is for the people that aren't familiar with this particular story, Walter. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's in coastal Peru in South America. There are six pyramids. They're about uh, 70 feet in height, so they're very good-sized pyramids. And they surround a, a very large plaza uh, with uh, kiva, circular-type uh, um, sitting places and that would often have a fire pit in the middle. And what's so fascinating about it is, that, is the age. Uh, it was only recently carbon dated, and they have really good dates because um, they found that Many of the rocks had been put into baskets, mm-hmm. and then the baskets were set into place. So the vines that uh, made up these baskets were almost hermetically sealed. Hmm. And so unlike you know many other pyramids, you can have a tough time telling how old it is because you can't carbon date stone. Hmm. But uh, they were able to find these uh, embedded baskets and got excellent date that goes back to 4,700 years ago. And why this is interesting, especially, is uh, the whole theory for, uh, uh, you know, Western culture was it formed roughly 5,000 years ago around the the Fertile Crescent, uh, the Tigris and Euphrates River there, and, you know, the the cradle of civilization, they called it, north of Egypt. And it supports this whole uh, out-of-Africa theory that you would have your first civilization there in the Near East. 
And, of course, the, the Giza pyramids uh, date to about uh, 2300 B.C., about 4,300 years ago. And history was working just fine until they go ahead and, and find these things that are 400 years older than the Giza pyramids. And it's, it's just causing a little rewrite of the history books. Right. And that seems to be happening more and more. I mean, uh, uh, as I mentioned right before you came on the air, another, another big giant stone circle found in, uh, in China just a week ago or so, some 4,000 some odd years old. Yeah, 4,100 years old. And, um, you know, usually they're always giving the conservative dating on these. Right, 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 right. Uh, but pe- few people realize how many of these have been found. You know, you hear about Stonehenge and, and this one, and maybe the one in uh, in Germany, the one of the largest in the world. But mm-hmm. uh, there's over 200 of these hinges that have been found. And actually, um, you know, they're in Japan. You have them. Uh, the most number per square mile is in Korea. Hmm. Uh, people do not realize that generally the extent of the megalithic culture, right. and the reason it's not talked about much in textbooks is they they didn't leave us. Uh, anything in the way of writing. Right, right. Uh, but they were sure tuned into something going on with the heavens and the mm-hmm. motions of the earth. Well, it's amazing because we're, uh, where I'm talking to you from here is Columbia, Missouri, and there's an amazing uh, uh, layout of mounds that go out throughout this whole area. Of course, uh, Cahokia is basically St. Louis, which was called Mound City before uh, before uh, the, the Western name was applied to it or whatever. But this uh, North America is peppered with these sites. I mean, the whole Western coast uh, is is amazing. Uh, if, if you really start to look at it, I agree with you. Yes, and again, that's a culture where we just don't have much in the way of records. But when you start adding up all the different uh, mounds that have been found, uh, many of them sort of in a in a baffle type of formation, uh, it's uh, it's indicative that something big was going on here a long, long time ago. You know, another one uh, that that uh, we've been studying is the uh, the Antikythera device. Are you familiar with this? I am. It, 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 it's uh, yeah. Well, you, you describe it, but it's a highly technical sort of handheld device that that, that can do all kinds of things, like measure orbits and uh, calculate. Uh, all kinds of astronomical uh, things, if I remember correctly. Yes, it was found by uh, uh, sponge divers off the Isle of Antikythera, that's in the Mediterranean uh, east of Greece, and uh, it was found with some amphora and some coins and jewelry, and it was just sort of a big encrusted blob, and uh, they slowly picked out some of the more valuable things, but the, the core of it just sat in the Greek Museum there in Athens. Uh, it was found in 1901, and because of the coins and amphora, accurately dated to be to uh, 80 B.C. That's when the shipwreck went down. Okay. And uh, it just sat there, and then somebody uh, happened to bump this thing uh, in the 60s, and it fell and sort of cracked open, and all these gears splayed out of it. And a, a fellow by the name of Price has since uh, rebuilt it as, as best he could. He's actually made a model. He's found that there's 32 different gears in this thing, including a, a large differential gear. It acts like a turntable mm. that, that moves the other gears. 
And what's so fascinating is we didn't come up with geared devices. We were all taught in school until the great clock-making era, right. you know, 12, 13, 1400. Right. And sophisticated gears like a differential device didn't come around until the Industrial Revolution. Right. So this thing is almost uh, 2,000 years out of place and just one more indication that uh, ancient man may have been a lot more advanced than uh, we think he is. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's on all these different levels. You're talking about a, a technical device that obviously had to, ha- had to be machined. That's the first implication. You can't make... Uh, you can't make gears that aren't precise uh, without machining them in some way, shape, or form, and they have to be made precisely. Otherwise, they'll uh, they'll go out of whack, especially when you have them in a in a uh, in a complicated situation with that many of them. You know, you're exactly right. The precision in gears uh, when you have lots of gears working together. You know, if one's slightly off, it throws the bunch off. Right. Also, the ratio, the math they've done it. Uh, that's how they were able to know that. It had something to do with the the moons and the planets, and mm. that um, one of the gears, for example, has a 13.3 to 1 ratio, uh, and of course the moon goes around the Earth 13.3 mm-hmm. times per year, per year right. and you know with the differential gear they could uh, also show the the moon phase cycle 12.3 times, and and uh, it did phenomenally sophisticated device for so so long ago amazing and so so we see it in the small device like that and then we see it in these gigantic structures that they've left behind that still leave us uh scratching our heads i mean uh, i've spoken to many engineers and any of them that are worth their salt say when they're standing there looking at at giza they they say i have no idea how the hell they did this yeah, what's well, it? Something like uh, two and a half million blocks. Um, well, the outer stones, uh, you know, often weigh just a few tons. Mm. Uh, some of the inner stones uh, are over 50 tons. I think there's one up to 70 tons. Right, right, right. Which challenge the the the, the capacity of some of our largest cranes of today. You know. Yeah, I know. You would just uh, plus the time to do oh. it today. Yeah. Uh, you know, you'd plan for several days to move a stone like that. Yeah, and sometimes you find them at the end of a uh, basically like a box hallway, and they, and and you think, well, how how could they have maneuvered it into there? Because you couldn't get at it from the other side, you know. Yeah, it's uh, really an amazing structure. Plus, we're learning more all the time. You know, the uh, they've slowly learned how fascinating the geometry of the pyramid is. But uh, it wasn't too long ago that they found the the queen uh, chamber's star shafts. Hmm. And that's a whole other topic. Right, and relevant, relevant to our conversation maybe later, yeah. Yeah, I haven't figured out, but uh, one indication that the ancients were fascinated with the stars. Hmm. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, well, I'll tell you what. Um, let's see. we got a couple more minutes here before we take a break. Let me ask you a question about, um, about archaeology in general. We sort of have this idea that we, uh, Western recent civilization are the only people that are concerned about archaeology, but it turns out that there have been people uh, from antiquity and many of our ancestors that were also interested in the deep uh, past, and actually uh, uh, people that we don't even have no idea about, names that I wasn't even familiar about until I read your book, this this one 
uh, Indian, uh, Ashur Banipal in particular, that I thought you might mention. But just talk about archaeology and maybe the history of it a little bit. Yes, I think in the West, uh, archaeology really started more as treasure hunting. You know, uh, <laughs> when, go uh, figure. <laughs> you know, Napoleon was going over to uh, to Egypt. They were looking for the loot, mm. and fortunately, uh, people began to realize how important uh, some of these artifacts were and how much they could tell us about history. So, over the next uh, 100, 150 years, uh, archaeology did form into a science uh, where, you know, great care is now taken to outline a site and, and slowly dig through the, the layers. Uh, but so we think it's a fairly modern art, and yet uh, when you look at Ashurbanipal, um, who was around, I think, six, seven hundred B.C., something like that. Right, like Assyria, right? He was a ruler of Assyria. Yes, the, the empire of Assyria, which is essentially, you know, where uh, um, Sumeria, Akkad, hmm. uh, was in, in prior periods. Uh, anyway, yeah, he went to great lengths uh, to, to excavate uh, places, and they seem to be very uh, exact in, in their language, uh, what we read about the way they would uh, try to reconstruct old, old uh, structures and, and not make them uh, off by more than a hair. And so they, they wanted to recreate things as they were in a prior age. There's uh, another fella, uh, scientist, uh, he's one of the foremost Assyrianologists, his name is Stephen Maul. Mm -hmm. He uh, spoke at Stanford uh, not long ago, and, and he has uh, interpreted some of these uh, cuneiform texts, uh, tablets, and he's noted uh, something very interesting, that the, the old, old uh, cultures, the farther back you go, the more they're interested in the past, and they revere it as a very high time, mm. and he's noticed that some of the, uh, the the terms that relate to, that they use to describe the past uh, are terms we use now for the future, hmm. and terms for the future uh, for the past, so the reverse is true. So they revered the past, and they dreaded the future. Uh, you even hear the Greeks like Hesiod talking about, mm. you know, the, the the lost golden age when mankind lived in perfect harmony with the the earth, mm -hmm. and uh, about the troubling times to come. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it seems like everyone here, uh, as these great civilizations were declining all around the world, knew they were declining, and they loved the past and they feared the future. Uh, Unlike uh, the paradigm now, where you know things seem to be going, uh, you know, think how troublesome the uh, the 20th century was with with uh, you know genocide, uh, Nazi uh, Germany, and then in Africa, two world wars, mm -hmm. atomic bombs, mm -hmm. uh, everything, and yet not a single nation went out of business, mm -hmm. and yet in the old world. Uh, Prior to the Dark Ages, uh, virtually every ancient culture uh, disappears from the face of the earth. Hmm. Interesting. 
Yeah, and, and we we do sort of have this idea now of, you know, the golden age is yet to come, great change is upon us, and the Messiah is near, all these sort of metaphors for uh, for this sort of paradise to come. Yeah, well, let's let's hope we get there. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, look, uh, let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about this. I want to talk about... Um, uh, uh, we, we just touched on the dark ages here, so we'll talk a little bit about that and how widespread it was and what uh, uh, what that sort of means in, in, in today's context, okay? Great, Mike. All right, uh, everybody, my guest is Walter Cruttenden, and let's uh, give out those website addresses right now. Uh, much of the information we're talking about tonight can be gleaned from uh, a couple of different websites. The first one, www.loststarbook.com. That's loststarbook.com. And uh, another website, which is awesome, and one of the ones that I'm really uh, pleased that I was introduced to is this, uh, the Binary Research Institute. So that's uh, www.binaryresearchinstitute.org. And uh, for the nuts and bolts stuff, really cool stuff there, and uh, wonderful stuff at both of those websites. You can link there directly from MikeHagan.com. Uh, we've got links up over to all of Walter's sites uh, at my site right now. And, of course, uh, this program will be uh, archived up on the web within uh, 24 hours or so uh, for the people outside of the listing area here who would like to uh, uh, to share in the information. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Back in a few minutes with Walter Cruttenden, author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. We'll have another hour and a half to talk with Walter to get really deeply into this stuff, and uh, very interesting stuff it is.
All right, more killer stuff there from Martin Lind, Basic. On Radio Orbit, this is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to it live Monday night, actually early Tuesday morning now, about uh, 12.35 a.m. on the 8th of November. And thanks for joining me tonight. My guest is Walter Cruttenden. He's the author of a wonderful book called Lost Star of Myth and Time. You can check out some information on his website at loststarbook.com. Loststarbook.com. And uh, amazing technical information at binaryresearchinstitute.org. Okay, so let's get back to it. Uh, Walter, here we go. That, Mike. All right, good. Um, all right, right before the break, I mentioned this idea of the you—you uh, uh, you, you just sort of touched on the dark ages, and we all have a little bit of uh, history, hopefully, that we've learned about this time that was uh, in our what we considered pretty long time ago. Most people consider the dark ages something that was long gone and uh, uh, that really leaves no remnants today in this wonderful modern world that we have, but. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Dark Ages, how widespread the Dark Ages were. Was it a planetary thing? Was it a regional thing? And 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 what? Uh, let, let's just talk about the Dark Ages in general a little bit, and let you let you riff on that for a minute. Sure. Well, the Dark Age uh, is the opposite of the Golden Age, as far as myth and folklore is mm-hmm. concerned. Mm-hmm. The um, the Greeks called it the Iron Age. Uh, the uh, Indians, they had their system of ages, and so they called it the Kali Yuga. Um, but other cultures had uh, different names for it. In any event, uh, the Dark Age is certainly better known to Western historians than the Golden Age is because it happened much more recently. As mentioned near the beginning of the program, all these uh, ancient civilizations uh, fell uh, in the Mideast, the whole Mesopotamia. Potamian and Egyptian culture fell. Um, and then in the Indus Valley, it's clear that Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa fell. And um, We really don't know much about uh, the Americas cultures, hmm. uh, you know, in prehistory. Uh, but How ironic. Yeah. The more yeah. we're finding, though, the more it's it's looking like there was a vast culture here and a, and a mm. fairly advanced one. As mentioned, we have the evidence of Terra Preta and the Corral um, pyramids and, and other uh, megalithic structures throughout South America and, as you mentioned, the mounds throughout uh, North America. And I think uh, some would say that um, the the Mayan culture fell... Uh, after the uh, Roman culture, and you know, as far as the cities crumbling, that's true. Hmm. But just as uh, uh, culture is not so much measured by how many buildings you have, but <laughs> really what kind of a civilization is it? So you can hmm. see that the Greeks were before the Romans, and uh, yet they were a more democratic. Uh, Nation. As a matter of fact, that's where we attribute democracy to. Just, right, right. We can't go back any farther. I don't have good records for it. Uh, whereas, you know, the Romans were pretty brutal and crucifying people in the streets, and uh, the sport would be, you know, having lions tear up Christians <laughs> near right, the depths of the right, Dark Ages. Right. You know, and 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 we have this. Uh, you mentioned Hesiod earlier, and Hesiod writes. Uh, 
a bit about the Cretan society, which we've connected now to, to, to Greece, you know, the, the pre-Grecian culture of Crete. And it turns out that, that, according to Hesiod at least, that the reports from what we know of, of the artifacts that had been found about the Cretan society is that they were even more so. It was sort of like the last remnant of the garden or something. They lived very peacefully. There was the lack of a patriarchal uh, male god and uh, and there was sort of a balance between uh, nature and men and women, the whole scene, apparently. Yes, yeah, some of the old Mediterranean cultures uh, sound uh, absolutely uh, wonderful. Um, you know, not just the palaces and, uh, and beautiful agricultural society on Crete, but uh, Malta, mm. you know, some of those mm. uh, structures go back. Uh, five or six thousand years. Again, we don't have good dating there, but uh, quite old. And but you know, some people nowadays say, well, see that the decline just happened in the West. It wasn't that way in China. Mm. But the more and more we're finding, um, China had the same thing. The Han Dynasty uh, was was the dominant uh, society over there, while the Romans ruled in the West, okay. and there's much evidence that the Han Dynasty uh, was lower and more brutal than uh, than the prior dynasties. Hmm. And as you mentioned, you know, they just found this uh, one, this 4,100-year-old uh, astronomical observatory there. Right. And uh, some of the, the jewelry pieces uh, they found, there was a, a fellow at Harvard, uh, Peter Liu, I believe is his name, and he... Uh, Notice the the fine quality of uh, some of the old hard stone jewels that they'd been finding in China, and he's concluded that they must have had something similar to diamond cutting, because the stones are so hard. The only thing they could be polished with with would be a diamond. And again, this is you know a technology that disappeared long before the Dark Ages and only uh, reemerged here in the last few hundred years. Amazing. So I I do think uh, it was worldwide, and more and more the archaeological record is showing it was worldwide. Okay. All right. Well, that said, then if we if we accept the fact uh, that that that, uh, that time and history are cyclical, then then all of a sudden these these mythical uh, stories from India. Like you mentioned earlier, the Kali Yuga and the Dwapara Yuga and all the and the, the four cycles of the of the Indian mythology, and then of course uh, it turns out that this ties into many many different mythologies, and we'll talk about that deeper. But maybe we can talk about these cycles of the ages and and try to define a little bit about them. Then, if if we're going to follow this line uh, that history uh, is cyclical. Okay. Well, as you know, many ancient cultures spoke about these cycles uh, through their myth and folklore. But we grew up being taught that it was just a fairy tale. There really was no golden age. And yet it's it's almost like then a grand conspiracy that the Indians had their four yugas, the Greeks had, had theirs, the Mayans called them suns, the Hopi called them uh, worlds, uh, but they all seemed to have uh, a similar sequence. Uh, with a high age at one end and a low age at the other. And so, uh, uh, you know, I think it was 
Giorgio that De Santillana, who I mentioned wrote Hamlet's Mill, was probably the first to notice how many of these uh, myths about cycles and higher and lower ages are equated to the procession of the equinox. Okay. This is this celestial uh, cycle. And um, just to sort of introduce that topic. Yeah, uh, I, think that, I think that's actually a good idea. Let's take the last 10 minutes of this hour and talk about and, and define procession and, uh, and, and get real clear on what this whole procession of the equinox is because it's such a, uh, such a central uh, concept and, and, and it's really one that it seems to be difficult to, uh, uh, to grasp for a lot of people, myself included. It took me many years before I understood what the hell it was even about. And likewise. <laughs> but it's so dominant in all these uh, myths and folklores uh, that you, it's, it's necessary. And the reason it's hard to understand is because I don't think we've properly interpreted uh, nowadays scientifically. But just to review it, Copernicus says the Earth has three motions. Okay. And he said, one, it spins on its axis, and that gives us a cycle of night and day. And it has a lot of other implications. I mean, we're all biologically adapted to be active uh when there's light and go to sleep when it's dark mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, things grow when there's light. and um, So this one little cycle, uh, one little celestial motion, the Earth spinning on its axis, affects all life here on the planet. The second motion of the Earth is that it's on a slight tilt and it goes around the sun. And it's the tilt that creates, causes one hemisphere to get more or less light uh, and therefore, it gives us our seasons. Okay, all right. And that's obviously everybody knows how how much that affects Earth. It causes things to spawn, hibernate, fly south. Hmm. Uh, you know, right. literally affects everything. Right, happening right about now here in Mid Missouri as I watch all the birds and animals moving and on the on the change. Yeah, they're they're in tune with the planet. Hmm. And so there's a third motion that Copernicus had to explain. And that's this age-old concept of the procession of the equinox. Okay. And the way you can see that is um, if you look due east uh, for a really long period of time, <laughs> How and long? You, you do it on the same day each year. So the sun's gone, or the earth has gone once around the sun, and and you're looking due east, say at at sunrise, okay. on the on the equinox, and the reason to use the equinox, it's a great marker that everybody uh, knew, especially in the old days. It's the day that the day and night are of equal length. The sun is right over the equator. If a, a line drawn from the sun to the Earth's axis makes an exact 90-degree angle. Mm -hmm. So uh, neither hemisphere is leaning more or less towards it, so it's, it's exactly the same. And so people use the equinox to look out at the constellations, and they noticed that over long periods of time, the constellation moves. And, you know, why would that be if the Earth has gone once around the sun? Um, you know, you should line up with the same constellations. So, so in other words, if you're, if you're facing east on, at sunrise on the morning of 
the equinox, either which is, which are March and September 21st through 23rd, something like that, depending on the calendar. Right, first day of spring, first day of fall. Okay, so you're facing east, and and you'll see. Okay, so there's a constellation, in other words, that's right above the horizon. Is this right? Exactly. And okay. that constellation uh, will slowly uh, change over time. Okay. All right. And so, you know, the popular saying nowadays is we're at the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Okay. Uh, when you're looking due east on the spring equinox, um, Pisces is uh, is almost out of view and, and Aquarius is coming in to take its place. Hmm. Almost like the motion of a clock. Exactly. The the 12 zodiacal constellations serve as the numbers on a clock, and the equinox serves as the the hour hand, tells you where we are in the great year. Hmm. Okay. And uh, so that's what the uh, ancients were talking about, which is rather amazing because you have to look at this a long, long time to notice it because... It only changes by uh, one degree in 72 years. You know, that's a lifetime. Right, right. So, so go, go on, but I'm, just, I'm jumping ahead, but I'm thinking the implication of that is that somebody had to be interested, of this, uh, interested in this and study it for a great length of time in order to be able to recognize the cycle. Right, and, and apparently lots of people, because it's hinted at in so many... Uh, uh, cultures mm. uh, around the world. You know, in the Norse c- countries, they have uh, uh, Senja and Menja, the two maids, the giantesses that are turning the world axis, and they're uh, producing the phenomenon of procession, and other cultures have different figures. Uh, but anyway, it's the third motion of the Earth, and so Copernicus uh, said, well, it must be caused by the Earth wobbling. And then Newton um, came along, you know, a little over 100 years later and said, well, gee, if the Earth wobbles, it must be due to gravity, which he had recently discovered or codified. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, scientists have said, okay, well, then it's got to be the gravity of the uh, moon, and but that didn't quite fit, and so it must be the tides. In there, it must be some of the other planets. And so each year, they kind of throw more things into the equation or every few years, trying to kind of figure out what causes the Earth to wobble the way it does in order to cause what we see as the precession of the equinox, different Hmm. constellations. And um, so that's the, uh, the, the dominant theory nowadays, they call it lunisolar precession theory, meaning it's primarily the moon and the sun that that uh, act on the oblate earth. The earth's a little fatter around the center. And uh, we know that if satellites are slightly, uh, you know, unbalanced and they're uh, torqued in one way or another, they can, they can precess. They can sort of appear to wobble. Mm-hmm. So that's what they believe is happening uh with the earth you know uh, just for what it's worth and I'm just thinking out loud here but my intuitive sense tells me that if that's happening that it's probably not a sustainable thing 
And, and it, it surprises me if you have something that's processing or wobbling, so to speak, uh, that, can, that can continue that, uh, that motion ad infinitum, basically. Well, um, that's, that's a good point in that, you know, theoretically, uh, well, more than theoretically, the, the moon is supposed to be 98% of the thing that causes the Earth to wobble. Mm. And slowly but surely, the moon drifts a little bit away from, from the Earth. I mean, it's, it's very modest. It's less than an inch a year. Right. Um, uh, but if anything, the precession rate should be very stable or slightly down versus what we're seeing is the precession rate is accelerating increasing, year, right. year after year. Right. And this is why they keep playing with the formula a little bit to try to get it to uh, come out to what they're measuring. To fit, right. And, um, but, yeah, I think there's, uh, and this is really where our work is focused, that uh, there's another explanation for the precession equinox, one that ancient cultures talked about that can produce the same observable, seeing different constellations at the time of the equinox, looking due east or due west, that map for that matter. Um, and that is, um, we believe that the solar system is curving through space around another star. And as you mentioned in the prelude to the program, uh, we now know that most stars are, are have partners, they're binary systems, mm. uh, with NASA putting that figure at 80% or so, right. binary or multiple. And I've read 85% even now. So. Yeah, I mean, if there's, uh, when you start to account for some stars being gravitationally attracted to a dark partner, uh, mm. you know, it could be even higher, but, right. but uh, so the big question then is, well, if we were uh, in a binary system, you know, where is this other companion star? Mm. And But the point here about precession is that uh, it would produce the exact same observable. It would show the Earth's changing orientation to inertial space because the solar system curving through space around the other star, and that's how these binaries work, you know, two stars gravitationally uh orbiting the same center of mass mm -hmm. um, would cause our view from Earth uh, would cause us to see a little different portion of space each day it would produce the same observable hmm. as precession. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Well, that's that's a good place to take a break, I think. And we'll come back and we'll talk more about this idea of, of, of the binary star and uh, what evidence we have in the folklore and mythological record, as well as the scientific record. There's certainly uh, quite a bit to talk about, in particular this book um, that, uh, uh, that Sri Yutkeshwar wrote, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, but it was called The Holy Science, I think. And, uh, and that's what I think that, uh, that, that we can talk about when we come back. Yeah, he's one of the sources, but there's many. Right. Uh, we'll talk about them all. All right, cool. Uh, we will be back in just a moment with Walter Cruttenden. And uh, Walter is the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time, a book that uh, is talking exactly about, uh, about this, the precession of the equinoxes and the possibility that uh, the sun is actually part of a binary star system 
and uh, that we are too, and the implications of uh, of all of this. So we'll continue our conversation with Walter Cruttenden in just a few minutes, and we will continue our uh, evening of uh, featured music with Basic. This is called Phase One. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit.
You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. And okay, here we are, back at it. It's 1 o'clock Tuesday morning, the 9th of November. We've been speaking for the last hour with Walter Cruttenden, uh, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time, uh, a book that we're uh, discussing right now. And uh, his websites are www.loststarbook.com and www.binaryresearchinstitute.org. And you can reach uh, any of those from MikeHagan.com as well. All right, Walter, um, hello, and thanks for sticking around with us here. My pleasure. Okay, look, uh, before the break, we were talking about procession, and you gave us a nice, clear definition of what that is, and uh, we'll talk more about it as we go here. But we have, so we have these two concepts. We've got this, the, the cycle of the ages, and then we have procession. And somehow, uh, and then we have this new uh, concept that you brought in right at the end, uh, end of the hour there, about the possibility of another star being involved in our system, and somehow these three things are, are are connected. So let's just follow along that thread. Sure. So just as uh, a celestial motion, uh, the Earth spinning on its axis causes a cycle of night and day, right? and the Earth going around the sun causes a cycle of the year, so too uh, do the ancients believe that the cycle of the procession of the equinox uh, causes the great year with the golden age at one end and the dark age at the other. And if you just take the the current or the modern theory of precession where the axis wobbles a little bit, it's hard to see how anything about that motion could actually uh, cause a great year, you know, with golden ages and dark ages. However, if you assume that some of the ancients were correct, that the uh, procession of the equinox might be due to our our sun going around another star, mm-hmm. carrying the Earth with it, uh, in and out of uh, an area of sweet influence, as, as Job in the Bible says, mm. uh, then it's uh, you start to have a hypothesis for how um, the rise and the fall of ages might occur. And to, I guess, give a little more perspective on that, uh, first you should know that um, the the Mithraic culture talked about there being another sun 
they called it Mithras, uh, the sun beyond the sun, the mm. hypercosmic sun, the sun that drives procession. Uh, the uh, the Norse cultures talked about that. I briefly mentioned these two giantists. They're called Fenja and Menja. They're mm-hmm. two maids that turn mm-hmm. the world axis, and they cause the rise and fall of civilization, according to that myth. And then uh, the whole uh, Egyptian Isis-Horus uh, mythology. Isis, of course, is, is the star Sirius, the most important, the more, most watched star probably in history, mm-hmm. the way the Egyptians talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you often see these pictures where Isis is suckling Horus or Isis is carrying Horus, and Horus uh, sometimes has his son on his on his head, um, in other words, Isis is, is uh, carrying the sun or suckling the sun. Right, right, there is this. And um, if we were indeed in a relationship with another uh, star and it's uh, it had a significant mass, then it would literally move the sun. It would cause, cause our solar system to curve through space. Hmm. And just to give one more point, uh, if... If our sun was moving through space, then it would be, it would come in and out of, uh, areas of space which would have an effect on our magnetosphere, our ionosphere, and quite possibly uh, consciousness itself. And the way we know that is that we know that all stars produce a huge, uh, electromagnetic, uh, spectrums. Right. Uh, obviously that's what the sun does, our closest star, it has a spectrum runs from X-rays to gamma rays, infrared to ultraviolet. Uh, the visible light is just one small mm. piece of that, mm-hmm. but it has many components. Like, for example, ultraviolet light. That's uh, we know that's very beneficial, and and many babies are born jaundiced, mm. and you will treat them with ultraviolet light, for example, so that avoid uh, serious brain disease. And so there are other stars, too, and they have these uh, spectrums, and they um, would affect us if, if we're being carried around another star, you know, through different portions of space. Right, and as, as, we, as we close distance with them or, or move away, there are different effects of these things. Yes, uh, that's certainly one thing, uh, proximity. Um, just as our proximity to the sun, uh, it's not so much the closeness, but it's the angle of the earth to the sun that causes the seasons. Mm. Um, so too might it be the angle of our solar system or the speed of our solar system or the proximity of our solar system relative to another star. Mm-hmm. So many different uh, variables come into these things. It could have great effects. Yes, but but there's good science behind it too. and. Uh, let me just mention the uh, UCLA science because I find that the most compelling. Okay. There is a, uh, a former professor of physiology there by the name of Dr. Valerie Hunt, and she uh, was interested in how electromagnetic fields would uh, would affect patients, in that man is generating lots of these fields, and some can be harmful and some seem to have no effect or or maybe even a positive effect. Mm-hmm. And so she she took people and and put them in uh, a room in the physics department. It was called the Mew Room. But what it is, it's a Faraday cage. And this is just uh, 
sort of a metal room that can insulate out all the electromagnetic uh, uh, waves in the air, mm-hmm. or a great deal of them. And they use these things to make really sensitive electronics. Well, to protect electronics uh, sometimes, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she gave him a test, and she was uh, surprised to find that when you block out all the electromagnetic uh, field, uh, people reacted very poorly. They, they became sad, and uh, several of them started to cry, just sobbing. And uh, they performed poorly on uh, both the written tests and the coordination tests. And they wanted out of there. <laughs> and and then she did it a few more times to make sure it was consistent. And then uh, she tried um, actually reversing the effect. So uh, she, I think she pumped up uh, negative ions. I have to check my notes on that. But um, in fact, created a, a greater... Uh, a subtle electric atmosphere, mm-hmm. and people reported being happy and actually did better on the test. Mm, and so if this can happen on a small scale with humans in a room on Earth, just imagine if the sun is carrying the whole Earth through a, a huge source or field of electromagnetic waves. Right, right. It, it could well uh, not only affect the magnetosphere, the ionosphere as, as we know it can, but it could affect uh, consciousness. Right. You know, we do, this, uh, we do this segment on the show every week that I call Space Weather, and we basically talk about what's happening on the sun and what's happening in the skies, you know, above our heads, but the point being that the sun uh, is the primary influence of everything that happens in this solar system, well, at least that 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 that's the old uh, school idea, but but certainly to a great extent. And if there's another star, the same implication follows. Yes, of course, the sun's our closest star, and it's uh, it's life and death, you know. And the star that the Egyptians talked about, Sirius, they actually said it is the bringer of life, and it, it takes away life. Hmm. And modern archaeologists have interpreted this to be, well, when Sirius rises, that's about the time the Nile floods. The flooding of the Nile, you know, brings life to this agricultural-based society. Mm-hmm. But it could be that the uh, there was something much deeper and esoteric in, in that uh, Egyptian folklore there about Sirius. Well, well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the folklore because I know that there are ties in with the Maya, with the Hopi, uh, with the Egyptians as we're talking about. There are connections to the Christian tradition in the Bible, the Book of Daniel, which I think is fascinating. Um, and again, these things tie in with the uh, uh, with the cycles of the ages as well. And as we're as we're seeing, they're all they're all sort of connected. But maybe you could talk a little bit more about some of those. Right, and uh, and of course the the Vedic you mentioned, uh, Gosh, Sri Yukteswar yes. there, uh, uh, and he was one. He, you know, he only uh, wrote his book in 1895, so it's it's very recent compared to a lot of myth and folklore, and it's it's really a book about uh, philosophy. But just he just touched on it in the introduction that he said, you know the planets spin on their axis and orbit the sun and, and the planets have moons uh, and the 
then the sun and the planets and the moons take some star for its duel, goes around it in a period of about 24,000 years, and this produces the backward motion of the equinox through the zodiacs, which is, so he's saying three things there. One, there's a, we're in a dual star system. Two, it takes about 24,000 years, which is just about the accepted uh, period of precession. And three, it produces uh, the phenomena we call precession. Okay. Um, these these rising and falling ages. And he said he didn't say he invented that or anything. He just said that's according to Oriental astronomy. Hmm. Even though he was well read on the West, he knew about Newton, knew the the other theories for it, but he happened to point out the Oriental one. Interesting. But you're right. It goes uh, this story of the great year goes back to uh, to the Bible. The, the book of Daniel uh, talks about uh, a time when uh, Daniel is captured, and I believe it's Nebuchadnezzar mm-hmm, it is, yeah. has a dream, and uh, Daniel is known to be you know somewhat of a sage or a clairvoyant or a seer or something. So the dream, the king brings uh, Daniel to help interpret his dream. And uh, Daniel gives this uh, eloquent description. Um, The king has seen a man with a head of gold, a chest of silver, Mm. a torso of uh, bronze, and then the very lower part, uh, the legs are are iron. So it's, it's the four colors in the great year, according to the Greeks, the Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age, right. Iron Age. Right. And then as Daniel goes on to talk, um, he's saying that, you know, the, some tough times are coming and we're going into a lower age. And, and uh, then he reverses uh, the colors when he's talking about them, Iron, Bronze, Silver, and Golden Age. And it's, uh, it's a metaphor for this, uh, this whole... Uh, great cycle, and I go into it in quite some depth in the book, but, um, you know, that's one uh, little bit of uh, biblical uh, reference to it. But every culture <laughs> seems to have it, from the Mayans, Hopis, Greeks, you name it. Well, give us another example from one of the, maybe the South American cultures, or maybe the Ho- the Hopi one is a pretty interesting example as well, I think. Uh, yes, the Hopis, they called that uh, not yugas like the Vedic Indians and not uh, ages like the Greeks, but they called them worlds. And uh, I'm going to peek in my book here, see if I There was one good quote by one of the uh, Hopi uh, chiefs. So they talk about the... the uh... Like the Maya talked about the fifth sun, they talk about the fifth world or the fourth world or something like that? Yes, yes. You know, because this is myth and folklore and so much of it was passed down verbally, mm. uh, it's a little difficult to uh, to understand. Uh, they each have their own terminology for it. But they all have the, uh, the same kind of uh, characteristics in that, um, you know, there's... There's a higher age and a lower age, uh, an age of incredible beauty. Mm. Man lives in in concert with it, with the earth, and, and one where man is sort of hurting the earth. Uh, 
I'm trying to see here. And again, while you're looking for that, the idea just being over long periods of time that we just sort of cycle up and down through these things. And sometimes you come in them, uh, you come at them from the forward angle, as you say, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then it reverses, iron, bronze, uh, silver, gold. And it, it, it almost, in my mind, it reminds me of like the sinusoidal curve or something, that just sort of up and down. And uh, Yeah, few people realize that all these... Uh cycles on earth are related to celestial motions mm. uh, you know directly or indirectly here's the hopi quote uh it's by uh Sutanung, uh one of the the great uh historical chiefs and he says i have something more to say to you before i leave sutiknan told the people as they stood at their place the name of the fourth world is tuakachi he said the world complete you will find out why. It is not all beautiful and easy like the previous ones. Hmm. So this is in the declining age he had uttered these words, and then it's been passed down from generation to generation. It has height and depth, heat and cold, beauty and barrenness. It has everything for you to choose from. What you choose will determine if this time you can carry out the plan of creation on it or whether in time it must be destroyed too. Now you will separate and go different ways to claim all the earth for the creator each group of you will follow your own star until it stops there you will settle now i must go but you will have help from the proper deities etc and then he had made reference to uh, uh, cities below the sea and mm. past mm. Uh, world cultures and um, so it's where he says see i have I've washed away uh, the footprints of your emergence of stepping stones, which I left for you. Down on the bottom of the seas lie the proud cities, the hmm. flying patavots, and worldly treasures corrupted with evil, and those people have found no time to sing the praises to the Creator. But the day will come when the stepping stones will emerge again to prove the truth you speak. Wow. So down on the bottom of the sea lie the proud cities. Uh, you know, in the Vedic uh, culture, they talk about that too. There being flying machines and advanced yes. culture. And yeah, they call them vimanas, I think, if I remember correctly. I think you're right. Yeah, uh, yeah I used to, I, well, believe it or not, I've touched on that too. But uh, at any rate, uh, uh, this. The, so each of the ages seems to have a sort of a character to it. Mm. Um, you know, the Golden Age is this mythical time when man lives in harmony with the earth and everything is very nice. Hesiod says even when people die then it's just as if going to sleep. Right. Uh, versus the dark age is, you know, this time of treachery when oh. when might is right and wisdom hides and mm. uh, you know, and the, sure enough you kind of see evidence of that as the ages were declining and um but Sri Yukteswar, being in more modern times, he, he gave a, some very nice, beautiful uh, explanations of the characters of the ages. And he said that the, the darkest age is the material age when man can only understand it through his five senses. It's just what you touch and feel and see, etc. Mm. Versus the next age, the one that we've just come into, is called the electrical age or age of energy when man is supposed to discover finer forces. And sure enough, if you look when we came out of the Dark Age uh, with the Renaissance period, uh, 
what does man discover? Electricity, magnetism, laws of gravity. Mm, yeah, the fire uh, forces, yeah. Yeah, he's re- realizing everything's made out of molecules, mm. and oh, that's all made out of atoms. And your quantum folks to say would say today, well, that's really just electrons. It's nothing but energy. Mm, right, these fields that just uh, are bound... Uh, Matter but, but, but is energy bound by these fields? Yes. Yeah, they uh, don't even know why. You know, Theoretically, <laughs> your hand should be able to go through the desk, but right, cause right. it's all 99.999% space. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, there's energy related to. All right, well, okay, so, so let, let's clarify the connection between precession and the cycles of the ages really quickly, and then we'll tie in the, the, uh, the, the star again. Okay, so the precession of the equinox is the observable. That's what the ancients saw, different constellations over time rising, um, and that's what scientists see today. Uh, you know, they see that the Earth's axis, they say the Earth's axis wobbles a little bit, that's why we see different constellations on the equinox. Um, so that's just the observable part of our sun uh, going around another star. And it's the motion around another star that brings us closer or farther away that we believe is the, the main driving mechanism that drives the, the rise and fall of the ages. And that's backed up by this science I mentioned with Valerie Hunt, uh, uh-huh. There's other uh, science that has gone on to test the effect of uh, magnets on on people. Um, For example, uh, uh, birds, uh, homing pigeons, Mm. they home via the magnetic field of the Earth. They they find they have a little uh, uh, sensitivity to magnets in their frontal lobe. Amazing. And they know this because when they put a little uh, magnet on them, it's, it doesn't affect their flight at all, except they can't find home. <laughs> so uh, there's, you know, there's something there that stars produce these huge electromagnetic fields or spectrums, and uh, I don't claim to know all the science how that works, but there's people working on it here at the Binary Research Institute and, and other places to try to figure that out, what exactly causes the rise and fall of the ages. Right. Wow. All right, well, uh, a couple other things really quickly as I look at my notes that I want to clarify a couple of things. We, we, we made the point earlier that the idea that older equals more primitive is a bad assumption probably. And uh, one of the great Examples of that, you, that 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 you point out in the book is this idea of heliocentrism. Um, that the, we we had this idea that we only recently realized, historically speaking, that 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 the sun was the center of uh, the solar system, and it may not even be as we're learning now tonight. But at least that's the uh, compared to the Earth being the center of the, of the solar system. Uh, this was something that was actually considered a long time ago. Yes. Uh the more we've learned, the more we've realized that the Greeks uh, were well aware of a heliocentric system. Philios uh, mentioned this. Um, uh, Aristarchos of Samos uh, talked about this. You can Google this. 
Uh, and even Archimedes uh, taught the heliocentric uh, system. The the fact that the solar system has the sun in the middle with the planets going around it. And then that was kind of all lost uh, during the Dark Ages. So by the time Ptolemy came along, <laughs> uh, people believed that the sun went around the earth. And I imagine if you walked up to somebody and said, hey, the sun doesn't go around the earth, the earth is spinning. You know, first they'd feel the earth and realize, well, I don't feel it spinning. Then they'd recall that they saw the sun rise in the east and it was overhead at lunch and now it's setting and they'd conclude you were crazy. The sun does go around the earth. Right, right, right. And, uh, of course, what they forgot was uh, a reference frame that the... The Earth is spinning on its axis. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Well, this is the meat of the argument here. So, um, hold that thought, okay? And uh, let's take a break. We're just about at the bottom of the hour, Walter. And and this idea of the frame of reference, the perspective, um, really will clarify uh, your your theory uh, of precession based on this binary star thing. And I think it's really really cool the way you describe it. So, can can we do that when we come back? Sounds good. All right, cool. All right, this is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, and my guest is Walter Cruttenden. We're discussing his book, Lost Star of Myth and Time. We're talking about precession of the equinoxes, binary star systems, the mythical cycles of the ages, and all kinds of really cool stuff. So uh, we will continue with more of that in just a few minutes here, and we'll continue as well with our featured music artist of the night. This is basic with the sleeper we'll be back in just a few minutes this is mike you're listening to radio orbit
All right, there you go. Uh, again, basic. That was called the sleeper. And this is Mike Hagan. And the show has not been a sleeper, that's for sure, actually. Uh, been a fantastic uh, conversation we've been having with Walter Cruttenden, author of The Lost Star of Myth and Time. Uh, information available at www.loststarbook.com and also at binaryresearchinstitute.org. There's a few other things that we'll talk to Walter about uh, toward the end of the program here. I know there's a conference that's coming up in Sedona that we'll mention, and maybe he can chat about with us, and uh, I don't know what else. But in the meantime here, we are talking about procession and the cycles of the ages. And uh, Walter, before the break, we just started talking about frames of reference and perspective, and I think that this is such an important thing and a a part of your argument that really really holds the water. And so let's talk about that a little bit. About First of all, quickly, you can describe, uh, again, the traditional sort of orthodox belief about procession, that it's just sort of this wobble of the earth that's caused by local forces, the sun, the moon, etc., uh, versus uh, a theory such as yours that says that precession actually is caused uh, by the um, uh, by this interaction with another star, and why the frame of reference is important to to, uh, to understanding that. Sure. Um, well, once again, you know, ancient myth and folklore from around the world uh, talk about this cycle of precession, with a golden age at one end and a dark age at the other. Right. And we can see the the uh, stars process across the sky, but of course we're told that it's just due to a wobbling Earth. And uh, as mentioned in Ptolemy's time, they could see the uh, sun rise in the east and set in the west, and they concluded the uh, sun went around the Earth. And it was, but they'd forgotten the reference frame. They forgot the Earth was spinning. <laughs> So it just made it appear that the sun goes around the earth. Um, and that's exactly what we believe is happening uh, nowadays with the uh, current precession theory. It's not that the earth uh, wobbles relative to anything within the solar system. As a matter of fact, we've measured it relative to Venus, the moon, and the Perseids uh, meteor shower. Okay. And the earth's axis does not wobble. And yet, it clearly moves 50 arc seconds relative to the distant stars, uh, inertial space. Actually, NASA measures it against quasars. So how could you have a situation where the Earth's axis doesn't wobble, doesn't move relative to anything close by, and yet moves 50 arc seconds uh, compared to very distant space? The only way that can be going on It's a seeming paradox for the current theory, but it's easily explained in a binary system. Hmm. That is that the axis doesn't wobble relative to anything close by, and it appears to move relative to the things far away because the whole solar system is curving through space. Ah. That's a reference frame of this solar binary system that's been completely forgotten. Hmm. And, um, you know, part of our work at the Binary Research Institute is to really document this really well, do a lot of proofs on it. We've written a couple papers on it, and we're talking to uh, astronomers and astrophysicists and um, starting to make some headway on the issue. Amazing. Okay, so that uh, 
that clarifies it right there. It's just it, it basically that they're just they just missed something, uh, just as uh, Ptolemy missed something. Yes, and I can understand why they missed it because it is complicated <laughs> when you get into it. You know, we're just talking about the precession equinox. It, it's a little tough to grasp uh, when you first hear it. Um, and so as I go around and talk to these uh, astronomers and astrophysicists, at first, you know, they say you're crazy. And then they realize, well, you really do know your stuff. And they they say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not the guy you ought to talk to about that because my field is, you know, near-Earth asteroids or or, uh, you know, nebula or something, uh, but talk to so-and-so. And it turns out that it's nobody's job to figure this out. Interesting. It, what happens now is you've seen these radio telescopes, uh, like in the movie Contact there. Oh, yeah. Um, and fields of them. Fields of them. And so they use these things to measure the Earth's spin and the Earth's changing orientation to inertial space. And they can measure it to a gnat. Right, right. Really right, close. Right. But then what NASA does, and they admit this on the VLBI website, that's a very long baseline interferometry, is they turn it over to the geophysicists and say, okay, the Earth uh, uh, changed orientation by 50.295 arc seconds uh, in the last year. Um and then the geophysicists will say, okay, well, that's partially due to the moon, that's partially due to the tide, maybe some of it is due to the core of the earth moving. Right, right, right. And so they're doing their job. They're trying to figure out what physically could move the earth. And just like when you see the sun go across the sky, there's nothing pushing it because the earth is spinning. It's There's nothing uh, or very little causing the axis to wobble. It is mostly... Just this change in reference frame, our curve through space. Okay. And, um, but it's nobody's job. <laughs> All right, there's one more. Uh, I'm looking at the clock here, but there's one more sort of pin that I think is worth mentioning here as far as evidence uh, that, that, that supports this theory. And this is the problem of angular momentum. And that's one that maybe you could talk about for a couple minutes. Sure. It's, uh, we have about a half a dozen pretty good proofs to... Uh, to show that the uh, precession is actually due to our being in a binary system, n not due to a local wobble. And all, let's see, all uh, bodies in motion have angular momentum, uh, spinning, orbiting bodies. Well, everything has momentum, and it's angular momentum if they're right. you know, changing angles. Because everything is spinning, basically. Right. Everything. Right, right. And so uh, the idea for this solar system, the way it formed, is that it was a big uh, bunch of gas and dust, and it slowly cooled and coagulated, forming the sun in the middle and the planets around it. And so they should all be spinning relative to their mass. There's a um, physics principle that you can't violate this law of uh, the conservation of angular momentum. Right, right, right. And a lot of people heard that in school, I'm sure. And so, uh, but what drives solar system formation theorists crazy is that um, the sun is the biggest mass 
in our solar system, you know, 99.99% of the mass, <laughs> right. and yet it only has 1% of the angular momentum. So it just drives them nuts. And um, the most of the angular momentum of the solar system is in the Jovian planets, hmm. Jupiter, etc. And that's because the planets, they calculated based on their spin, on their axis, and their curve, their orbit around around the sun. But since they don't assume that the sun is moving anywhere, it's essentially use a static system, or they assume it goes very slowly around the galactic center, or maybe just around a little tiny circle as it's pulled by Jupiter. Um, the sun's angular momentum doesn't show up. But when we plug in that the sun is in a 24,000-year orbit, curving through space at 50 arc seconds, uh, a year, and you consider the sun's mass, voila, the hmm. sun has its proper angular momentum and so does everything else. Wow, so it works out. In the system. And as they say in mathematics, it's like a best fit scenario sort of idea. It's a best fit, yeah, the whole precession rate stuff. Uh, there's some real complicated ones between sidereal and tropical years. Right, right, right. But it all works really, really nice. So I think that we're only a few years away from it it being widely accepted, I, I, I'm realizing that uh, science is, is marketing. You know, you got to get a thousand guys to understand the theory and then sort of nod to each other and before it can make it into the textbooks. And right, sort of. right. They're very interesting. All right, well, look, we... Um all right, we've established, or 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 at least to, to the best that we can in 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 an hour and a half's worth of time, and I want to mention that that much of this, all of this that we're talking about, is laid out in great detail, and it's documented very thoroughly, and uh, the mathematics behind all of this stuff uh, is available. This particular website, uh, uh, Walter, that you run in the Binary Research Institute, that's uh, that's great for the for the hardcore physicists or the people that are interested in mathematics if they want to go look at this stuff. Yeah, that's the technical stuff. But, the you know, I wrote the book uh, in a real friendly form, and, and it's edited well, I, I think. We've had great reviews on it. It's selling good. And, and so, uh, you know, that tells the story of history and the rise and fall of the ages. And, and I don't think it'll bore too many people with the math because we left most of the equations out. Yeah, it's a great read, actually, and there's wonderful illustrations in there as well. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, as as we can understand uh, really how the the solar system works, this binary system, then uh, we should have a better understanding of history. And if we can start to realize that the ancients uh, knew a lot more than we give them credit for, then instead of denigrating our past, our ancestors as mere primitives, uh, we can start to respect them and maybe learn from them and try to figure out why they were building so many things out of stone, why they built things in alignment with the heavens. Um, for example, the Round Towers of Ireland. Do you, did you happen to read that part in the book? I don't yes, know. Yes, yeah, it's a fascinating part, actually. Yeah, this guy, Philip Callahan, he was going around. He noticed, uh, you know, these towers plants seem to grow better around them. Right. So he decided to map them out and really figure out the science of this. And as he was plotting it, he kept saying, I know this. I've seen these dots and these patterns. What is it? And he, he looked up and realized 
the round towers, which were mostly built on old Druid sites, uh, were built in the shape of the Big Dipper and Cassiopeia and the major <laughs> constellations in the Northern Hemisphere. Right. And it's amazing, you know, the, as we were talking about earlier, that the, all these mounds and pyramids and things that we're finding now all over the planet, literally peppered with them, uh, they're not just randomly placed. They, uh, many, many, many of them, at least it seems that the more you look at them, the more you find out they are laid out with the significant astronomical patterns. Yes, yeah, and of course the, the Giza pyramids, you know, well known to reflect uh, Orion's belt, right, but right, right. I was just reading about Thebes, and it uh, hmm. looks in northern Egypt, it looks like uh, all the main temples uh, make the pattern of Aries. It's, uh, I think we've barely scratched the surface because we haven't even looked at ancient sites wow. this way. This is just kind of stuff that's popping to the surface. Amazing. Hey, Walter, I'm looking at my email here, and I have a question from a listener who says, uh, uh, if there's another star, why don't we know what it is? Why can't we see it? Etc. Well, great question, and there's... Or do, or do we? Well, there's two scenarios here, Mike. Uh, one is that Newtonian dynamics apply, and therefore, it would have to be fairly close, anywhere from 800 AU to, say, 1500 AU. This is astronomical units. Right. And um, the, the nearest star is much, much farther than that, and therefore visible star. Therefore, it would have to be a, a brown dwarf or maybe one of these old theoretical neutron stars mm -hmm. or a planet-like mass or something that's very difficult to see. Mm -hmm. um, but our instruments are getting better and better, and uh, you know that scenario. Uh, it could still be a brown dwarf, if, maybe if it's towards the galactic center, because mm -hmm. it's hard to see stuff there. Um, but a more likely scenario is there's a lot of papers uh, being written now on gravity theory, mm. and um, since there's so much myth and folklore about it being a star. And there's one star, um, uh, particularly Sirius, that's, you know, it's been observed more than any, talked about, and more myth and folklore than any, the brightest star in the sky. Yeah, and again, in many, many different cultures, from Egypt to the Dogon in Africa, et cetera, et cetera. You bet. And uh, it went by the name of uh, Nibiru, and, mm. um, which has sort of been misinterpreted by some to be a planet, but uh, if you read... Giorgio de Santolina's work in Hamlet's Mill, it, it clearly means brightest star in the sky. Hmm. Um, and the fact that it it crosses means this star would stay relatively fixed because it's within our binary frame and all, would cause all the other stars to cross or turn around it. Hmm. You know, it produces hmm. the observable <laughs> precession. Hmm. Um, but, uh, so that's a scenario, but in order to get around a common center of mass with Sirius in 24,000 years, we'd have to be moving uh, something like 450 kilometers a second. And coincidentally, there's an astrophysicist in uh, Australia who's just come out and said we're moving about uh, 430 kilometers a second. So he got very close to the number we've been looking for uh, based on 
some new thinking about gravity. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, so I think we're still some years away from understanding that part of it, how we seem to move farther and faster than uh, we currently believe through space. Uh, but I do think uh, just the, uh, the cause of precession uh, will be accepted uh, before that part. Yeah, and so then we have the greater implications then of this turning of the ages that no longer becomes just some sort of nostalgic, uh, fuzzy uh, thing, but becomes something that's real. And, and, and where are we in that, uh, in that particular cycle? Yes, should have a wonderful uh, uh, ripple effect, you know, once we realize we're in a binary system and uh, there might be truth to these 200 myths and folklore around the the world, then I think archaeologists can look at everything with a new context and start to realize, okay, if that's true, then we're now in an ascending age, uh, and that's... That's what uh, Sri Yukteswar would say, and um, you know, even some indications the Mayans are saying that mm. um, that we've gone through the Dark Age now, and we're just just barely, you know, a little over a thousand years into the Ascending Age. But if you look at the procession tables, the rate is increasing, so it's sort of exponential. Explain what you mean by that. Well. Um, the procession rate uh, uh, increases by a greater amount each year. Uh, Simon Newcomb had a formula for procession and said, this is how you calculate it, but you have to add uh, 0.000333 arc seconds per year uh, to get it, to make it come out right. And then we found out you not only have to do that, but uh, you have to actually increase that that constant each year. Hmm. Um, and and sure enough, if you look at what's happening outward in the world, um, technology seems to be moving ever faster. Um, there's, in the whole world of physics and quantum worlds, people are realizing how ethereal things are and many more theories are coming out that pretty much everything's made of energy. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think the world is changing right before our eyes. And, and so I, I, I don't pretend to know what the implications of all that are, but I do think the, um, you know, the Mayans talking about 2012, there, there might be something to it. We might be reaching sort of a, a spring in the great year, a sort of a critical mass where lots of people start waking up. Wow, and it's just this sort of thing, as you mentioned, it's sort of a ripple effect idea, but it is sort of the, the groundwork that you bootstrap from from that point, you know what I mean? Because as soon as you recognize, wait a minute, there is more to the story, uh, then it, uh, it, bec it, it becomes that foundation to work on, and then, and then things don't look so hopeless, maybe, you know? You bet. Yeah, it's uh, really looking... Uh, exciting. I, I, I think yeah, it is a positive time in the world. You know, um, the, the the recurring theme is this is this idea of change of reference. You know, uh, as you mentioned just a, just a couple minutes ago, the scientists, archaeologists, etc., uh, with this new information, can then change their 
contextual reference point. And then people in general, you know, when they realize the the nature of these uh, of these things, again, can change their reference point, and and it's significant. Yes, and you know what's also significant on that same point is is that the Mayans, um, uh, you know, talked about this uh, this changing of the suns uh, that would happen in 2012. Right, right. And even though the current scholars only think the Mayan culture is, you know, a couple thousand years old, uh, this calendar dates back to about 3000 B.C., the beginning of it. And they were mm-hmm. fabulous uh calendar oh, uh, technicians and that's that's widely recognized because they used so many calendars that they all cross calibrated and um, sort of like that little device that you talked about earlier in yeah the like the Antikythera device <laughs> um, but anyway they associate the new age uh, or the um, this next sun the fifth sun with uh, a time a new time they call it and this comes from, uh, there's still some Mayan uh, descendants living in the Honduran mountains, and they've tried to keep some of their uh, culture alive. Mm. And so they're all talking about how we're going to have a new time, a new world uh, here. And so maybe literally there is a new time when we realize the, the third motion of the earth and what it causes it, and it causes this big change in, in reference and context um, you know, maybe that is is part of this new time that they're referring to. Right, and you know the uh, for for people who aren't real familiar with the whole with with the Mayan concepts, the, there's sort of a misconception or maybe an oversimplification about the Mayan calendar, and that people have this idea that in 2012, December 21st, at the noon solstice, that 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 time will end or the world will end, but that's really not the case. It's, again, this idea of cyclical time and what really is happening. It's just the renewal uh, and the beginning of a new age, and that's literally the way it was defined. I think so, and maybe it's uh, some smaller concepts that that end and we embrace uh, larger concepts Hmm. and hopefully more uh, positive concepts. Well, I tell you what, Walter, it is an amazing and fascinating uh, book that you've written, and the theory uh, behind it is solid, and uh, uh, and it really deserves uh, discussion and debate, and uh, uh, needs to be. That's what we're going to do on Friday and Saturday. Yeah. Okay. I was just going to mention we've got this uh, uh, this conference that's coming up in Sedona. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, real quick? Sure. It's uh, we've got some of the top uh, archaeoastronomers, authors, researchers in this field of alternative uh, history, uh, all gathering to meet at the Conference for Procession and Ancient Knowledge, uh, CPAC. Mm. Uh, and we're, we'll have our sort of our private uh, research meetings on Friday where we present highly technical papers to each other. And then on Saturday, uh, we've invited the public, and we're going to uh, present, uh, you know, put all this in layman's terms and, and give it out there to the public. And that's in Sedona, Arizona on uh, November 12th. If anybody's interested, they can uh, uh, still go to the website. It's called uh, cpak, 
2005.com. That stands for Conference uh, Procession Ancient Knowledge 2005.com. All right, CPAC2005.com. And uh, there's a DVD available, too. Is that right? Yes. Uh, it's it's the one you mentioned at the very beginning. Uh, it's called The Great Year. Ah, yes. Narrated by James Earl Jones, and it, it gives a simple introduction to this concept of cyclical history and and then just touches a little bit on some of the astronomy. All right, cool. And the book available, of course, pretty much wherever you want to find it. You can get information at the website at loststarbook.com. And again, uh, technical stuff and detailed information at binaryresearchinstitute.org. And, uh, wow, two hours like that, you know, we could talk a lot longer about it. Maybe we should uh, uh, have a follow-up on this, uh, Walter. Well, maybe sometime after the conference, I expect to learn a lot of new stuff. So, uh, you know, we'll maybe catch you uh, when it's convenient for you again. All right, sounds good. We'll we'll, we'll make sure we stay in touch and actually uh, stay on the line there with me just for a moment, if you will. And uh, everybody, there you have it. Uh, wonderful guest. Thank you very much to Walter Cruttenden. And, uh, again, his book, Lost Star of Myth and Time, and information available at www.loststarbook.com. I hope you all enjoyed the show tonight. It was fascinating, and it was uh, uh, everything that I had hoped it would be, and I'm really pleased that we had a chance to uh, uh, to spend a full two hours with Walter, and uh, a big thank you to him again for staying up uh, late into the nighttime, even though he is on the West Coast, uh, and uh, and sharing his information and knowledge with uh, with me and you. All right, so cool. This is Mike. We're going to finish things off here with one more song from Basic, Martin Lind. Uh, next week, don't forget to uh, come back same time, same channel. Lucy Pringle will be talking about crop formations and uh, the latest, greatest in her neck of the woods there in uh, in Hampshire, England. And lots of other great stuff coming up as we move forward. So thanks, as always, for listening. You can check things out on the web at www.mikehagan.com. This uh, particular show tonight with Walter Cruttenden will be up sometime tomorrow. I just got to do a quick edit and uh, and throw it up there on the web. So we'll have that up as soon as possible, and we'll make sure that we let everyone know when it's available. All right, thanks again, and we'll be back at you next week. This is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit, and uh, we'll talk to you later.